Episode 187 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you by our friends at Cloud Accounting Software FreshBooks with a free 30-day trial available just for you. To find out more, visit freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. Companies cannot expect us to simply put our heads down and be minions and work like we're going to have lifetime stability because they have proven to us over and over again that we're relatively expendable. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast with Jeff Brown. Jeff believes that if you desire to achieve true success in business and in life, then consistent and intentional reading is a must. The Read to Lead podcast will not only help you narrow this ever important reading list, but also bring you key insights and valuable feedback from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. And now, here's Jeff. Hi, and welcome to my podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. We talk about leadership and also dig into topics like personal growth, productivity, career, business, marketing, sales, and entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurship gets the focus today, uh, at least the part-time kind. In a moment, you and I are going to be joined by Patrick McGinnis. He is the author of The 10% Entrepreneur, Live Your Startup Dream Without Quitting Your Day Job. I'll be asking Patrick to describe what's changed in the work world the last decade plus that necessitates thinking like an entrepreneur, many of the benefits of part-time rather than full-time entrepreneurship, how actually doing so makes you a better employee, and much, much more. If at the end of this episode you decide 10% entrepreneurship or something similar is right for you, then you're obviously going to need an accounting solution. And that's where our sponsor, Cloud Accounting Software FreshBooks, comes in. They make that side of operating your business super simple. I've been using it since 2009. I swear by it, and I wouldn't recommend any other cloud accounting software solution but FreshBooks. And one of the neat things they're doing uh, currently is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial. You get access to all of FreshBooks features for that 30 days so that you can make an informed decision. No obligation to continue. They don't take your credit card even at sign up. It's super simple when you go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead. That's freshbooks.com slash read to lead to find out more. When you get there, be sure and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. Whether you're a 10% or a 110% entrepreneur, cloud accounting software Fresh books is the perfect fit for you. Go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead to find out more. Patrick McGinnis is a venture capitalist and private equity investor who founded Dirigo Advisors after a decade on Wall Street to provide strategic advice to investors, entrepreneurs, and fast-growing businesses. As a 10% entrepreneur, he's built a diverse portfolio of investments outside of his day job that includes new ventures all over the world, including Ipsy, the world's largest online beauty community, uh, Blue Smart, the inventor of the world's first smart-connected carry-on suitcase, and Affinity, a big data company that is reinventing the call center industry. He's also written articles for well-known publications like Fortune, Business Insider, and Forbes. His book, released last year, is called The 10% Entrepreneur, Live Your Startup Dream Without Quitting Your Day Job. Well, Patrick, it is a pleasure to have you on. Welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Uh, well, I wanted to start out by asking you, in, in general terms, define for us uh, what a 10% entrepreneur is, essentially, and, and describe, Patrick, what has changed in your view in the work world the last decade or so uh, that you believe necessitates thinking this way in the first place. 
Sure. So a 10% entrepreneur is somebody who spends at least 10% of their time and if possible, 10% of their money starting, investing, advising, getting involved with entrepreneurial ventures outside of their day job while keeping their day job. And the reason that I came up with this idea is because I actually had to do this myself. So I came out of my MBA program. I went to Harvard Business School. I went to a corporate job on Wall Street, working in private equity as part of a big um, financial uh, services company. You know, everything was great. Um, and then in 2008, my company blew up. And for the first time in my life, I realized that the path that I had always thought was going to be the, the the one that was going to be the right one for me, the one that was sort of prestigious and had a lot of rewards and that and that could be the you know the way for me to make a lot of money and and do something interesting was in fact uh, not the stable stable path I thought it could be and that in fact there is really no stability anymore <laughs> right I mean right. think back to two thousand eight think back to when major corporations were going bankrupt every day, right? And, and and that was a very impactful time for me. And it reminded me also of the year 2000 when the tech bubble burst. And it reminded me of 1987. And it reminded me of the fact that there really is, um, no matter what you do, you can do everything right. Um, you, can, you can be very successful, but you never know when the things that you're doing just kind of can blow up. So there was that kind of realization. And at the same time, I looked around and saw friends of mine who were doing entrepreneurial ventures. And I thought to myself, well, you know, that's great because your um, your efforts and your outcome are aligned many times. So it's not like, you know, when you're working in a company and somebody makes a big mistake and it goes bankrupt, you didn't even know you had no you had no involvement in that. With entrepreneurship, at least if it fails, it's because you did something wrong. But the problem is that it's very hard to be an entrepreneur. It's a very tough lifestyle and most entrepreneurial ventures fail. And so I thought to myself, well, what, what am I going to do here? You know, the, mm. both of these paths are pretty tough. Is there a way I can sort of combine the best elements of both of these? And so I thought, what if I were to take the autonomy that you get as an entrepreneur and combine it with the beauty, the, st the stability you get from a day job? What if I were to combine the upside and the rewards of entrepreneurship with the stable, you know, elements of your day job so you can do them both at the same time? And so that's what I did. I started doing things on the side while keeping my day job as a way to build upside into my career to diversify against my day job. And in the process, I realized that not only did I get all that, but I started learning what it meant to be an entrepreneur and bringing those skills back into my day job to be more successful there. And I love the whole part-time uh, mentality. Uh, if, if it does fail, well, it, maybe you had a little bit of money, a little bit of time, but you still have that job to fall back on. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I totally identify with that. Having lost my last job through no fault of my own after 13 or 14 years in that job, and about two or three years before that happened, I began a side business in the margins of life. And were it not for that, I would have had no choice but to go out and find another job as fast as I could. And in my industry, that would have meant probably moving to another town and disrupting and uprooting my family. But I was able to, because of that side business, keep my head above water for several months until I really figured out what I wanted to do long term. And I've been um, happily unemployed ever since. <laughs> that's exactly right. I mean, that's the thing. When you, listen, we all, no matter who you are, you look at people you respect a lot and, and people who are very successful. Everybody can tell you a story about when they lost their job or when something unexpected happened and threw their life into disarray, right? That's just going to happen. Even the most the people that I know who have been most successful have all had a period like that. Now that I have all these projects outside of my day job, I don't fear that anymore because I know, God, you know, God forbid something happens. I got 20 other things going. I've done 20 different side projects. Each one of those is an on-ramp to a new opportunity for me. 
Well, for somebody uh, concerned about, say, uh, how starting a, a side business or, or side entrepreneur gig, if you will, might be received by their full-time employer, uh, wh- what would you say to them? What, what do they need to navigate or be careful of? Sure. I mean, this is this is a strategy that, and I put this right in the front of the book, because what I didn't, my biggest fear, well, you know, I had tons of fears, because when you write a book, it's, it's, a, it's an exploration of your own fear. <laughs> <laughs> but what I, one thing I didn't want to happen was people to, to to walk into their boss's office and say like, uh, you know, I've got a side gig going on and, and the boss says, well, that's, I don't, that's not allowed by, by his company. And then there's a big fight, right? So I tell people, number one, you must absolutely respect the rules at your job. If you sign an, an employment contract that says you can't do certain things and you don't do those things. Mm. If you're in the office, don't be using the FedEx uh, code <laughs> of your company to send stuff for your personal business. I mean, those things just, it's not right. And, and, and 10% entrepreneur we we don't play in the gray areas we do things morally correctly we do things you know that we would be very comfortable with our bosses knowing right mm. now what does that mean the reality is today 40% of millennials and 30% of Americans in general are doing side projects the train has left the station mm. this is happening most companies by the way are totally fine with this a few aren't mm. but you know for example I was at Google I spoke at Google three times last year because Google encourages its employees to do this why because companies we forget Google's not a startup <laughs> you know what I mean I mean I thought I think it's like mm. it's the largest company in the world is not a startup <laughs> and companies need their their employees to be able to think like entrepreneurs and it's very hard to teach somebody to be an entrepreneur without giving them a real entrepreneurial experience and the only way to do that is for somebody to take charge of their own journey in that way and so what i tell people is listen Go out, do things, don't hide in the shadows, be open about it, but also make sure that when you're at the office, you're doing an excellent job, you are beyond reproach. And then what's going to happen and what, what I've seen happen in a number of cases, and I have these in the book, is either your colleagues become your first customers or you know you actually can sell your services at the office or you create a business that someday either your boss invests in or your company invests in or maybe even acquires. Wow. Wouldn't that be awesome? (laughs) It happens all the time. That's the thing. And so it's a great opportunity to do that. Yeah. And I think more companies are realizing to what you're saying or or in the very near future will need to come to terms with all this ultimately makes for better employees for them. Right. Precisely. And you know what? This, and this is the thing, right? I just had a conversation this morning with a guy who used to work at TED and we were talking about the future of work because it's a pet project of his and an area he's interested in. And it's like large companies now cannot expect us to simply put our heads down and be minions and work like, you know, we're going to have lifetime stability and the promise of a lifetime job because they have proven to us over and over again that we're relatively expendable. And so as a result, I think the fair part of that bargain is that they should accept the fact that people also need to be cultivating their own gardens and building something for themselves. And I think that that social contract is changing and that more and more, and this is happening, you know, especially given the millennials, you know, are so open to doing things on the side. I think more and more this is going to become part of the play because there just isn't a guarantee of lifetime employment like there used to be. Those days are done. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, one of the things I appreciate about Patrick is his ability to clearly identify and label things. Uh, And I appreciated your descriptions of the kinds of entrepreneurs or 10% entrepreneurs uh, we should should consider. So so break those down for us if you don't mind. Sure. And thank you for the compliment. I will tell (laughs) you that I'm not the most structured thinker in the world. 
world. But mm-hmm. when you when you write a book, you you really have to do that. And so I, I did sit down and really think through these things. And I'm glad that 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 came across. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are five types of 10 percent entrepreneurs. The first is the advisor. And that is somebody who invests their time for ownership in a company. Either you do a project and you get equity or you um, you become like an advisor and you give an hour a month for advice or introductions and things like that. The angel is somebody who invests their money for ownership in a company. Angel investors are now a big trend. They invest billions of dollars in companies. They're angel investment groups, more than 300 in the United States. Um, it is a, you know, it's here to stay. And, you know, thanks to the, the the falling cost of actually starting companies, more and more of us can actually become investors in those companies. There's been a democratization in startup finance. And that's where the angel comes in. Mm. The third is the founder. That's somebody who runs and starts a company while holding down a day job. So they are the owner of that company and they're the operator of that company. The fourth and the fifth are subtypes of 10% entrepreneurship. Um, And the the first is the aficionado. And that's somebody who is a 10% entrepreneur, but they really direct their activities towards exploring a passion. Like say you love to cook, you become an advisor to an investor or co-founder in a restaurant, and then you go cook there whenever you want. It's a great way for you to take part in something you love to do at the level of a professional without having to actually do that as a career. And finally is the 110% entrepreneur. And that is somebody who's already an entrepreneur. They recognize the fact that they've got this very fixed bet, this concentrated bet in in their startup, which is pretty risky. But they also recognize they've got a set of skills that are valuable to other entrepreneurs. And so they use those to either gain access to deal flow or become an advisor or even a co-founder of a company that somebody else is starting. And what's great about that is not only do they diversify themselves, but, you know, if something doesn't sort of go right at their entrepreneurial venture and that venture fails, they've got all these on-ramps into other opportunities that they could join. Hmm. So it's a great way to, to also sort of create a cushion if your venture fails. And another thing I appreciate about the book is, is how you walk us through navigating each one of these, these areas. I never would have thought that I would one day be an advisor for another company, something I did uh, in the not too distant uh, past, but didn't ever think to formalize the relationship and, or, or ask for, for payment in the form of stock. Or, you know, I think I got to add it to my LinkedIn profile and that was about it. Yes. And you know, it's funny you say that because, and I've done the same thing, right? And listen, whenever you want to be an advisor. So if you, if you say, if you're like Patrick, that's the way I want to do things. You know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not really an angel investor, but I could definitely be an advisor. Here's the thing. We, a lot of us do this for free anyway, and you should, you know, always start by showing people what you can do. So you, you know, it's not that you walk in the first meeting with a contract and say, give me 2% of your company. (laughs) That's not the play. But what I tend to do is I let people know what I can do for them. We sit down and then I do some things just because I'm, I'm trying to help and, and learn. But then, you know, as they, you know, the thing is, is like, once you give somebody a little taste, then they want more. Right. <laughs> and so I'll say, listen, you know, I love helping you out, but I, I really want to help you more and I want to get more involved. And why don't we find a way to get me involved, you know, formally as a, as a shareholder in your company. And, and it's so funny. I have a friend who he read the book a week later, I got a call from a woman that we, that we both knew. And she said, uh, do you think that Will read your book? And I said, I, I, yeah, I know he did. And she said, I figured that out because he called me last week and told me he doesn't going to advise for free anymore and he wants stock <laughs> in my company. And I said, I, and I said, you should be ashamed that you haven't been giving him stock all along. He's doing an amazing job for you. So <laughs> right. if you have to ask and you want to blame somebody, you can tell people you can blame me. Uh, blame Patrick. <laughs> well, share a bit, if you would, Patrick, about opportunity cost and the need to play to our strengths in, in the process. 
Yes. So here's the thing. Um, We are all busy people. We all are. Life is about trade-offs. And that sounds so pessimistic. And I don't mean it in a pessimistic way. But, you know, we sit down every day and we have to decide how we're going to spend our time. And part of that is a realization that, you know, there are some things you will you will have to give up. Now, when I was thinking about, you know, what should I do as a 10 percent entrepreneur? I figured out that the things that I needed to be doing were things that sat at the intersection of what I was good at and what I enjoyed doing. Because what you're good at makes you successful and gets people to want to work with you. And what you enjoy doing gets you to be excited and want to spend time on it, right? Mm. And so as I thought about, you know, okay, what do I enjoy doing, right? And sort of like, well, I enjoy a lot of things. I enjoy watching TV, but that's not going to be a business, <laughs> um, right? That's, that's just that's just something I like to do. And so I thought, what? okay, like how can I really think about the things that I love the most. And so I thought, imagine I had all the opportunity cost of my life disappeared. Like I went to work in the morning and my company was closed down. And that basically happened to me, by the way, in Mm -hmm. 2008, my company went bankrupt. And so I thought, you know, you're free to do anything at this point. You got nothing to lose. What would I do? What kind of things would get me excited? And that's when I started sort of thinking about that. And then, you know, I combined that with the things that I was good at. And I figured those out by actually like sort of writing a bio and thinking through, you know, what are my skills? And that allowed me to figure out, okay, what am I, you know, what that's playing to your strengths is when you can find those things and then expand within that sort of area. That's where you you know you're hitting your sweet spot. Mm. Well, uh, I don't know about you, but I can't think of anyone who hasn't suffered at one time or another from some level of what's commonly known or referred to as imposter syndrome. How, how would you recommend or what advice would you give, I guess, uh, to those maybe facing that issue? Yes. I remember the first time I heard that expression. I was with a friend of mine, uh, an old friend of mine, and we were having dinner in Koreatown in New York City. And I was doing all this stuff. I was starting out in my 10, that was really early in my 10% times. Mm. And I was telling her about it and she was like, don't you ever suffer from imposter syndrome? And I was like, oh, that's what you call it. Like, <laughs> yes, I was, and I, and I actually had an experience that that really, it's seared into my memory, which is I, I um, when I first started doing my 10%, I have a, lo- a lot of things that I do in Latin America and I, have a, I had been an investor there and I had a big network there early in my career, but I hadn't been there to Brazil in years. And I flew down to Brazil for this conversation conference one weekend. And I was going to go there and try to find some companies and get involved and just try to reactivate my network. And I go to this conference and they lost my luggage and I show up and I'm wearing like the clothes from the plane. I look like I've been hit by a bus. And I went to a panel of people who had basically doing the same job I used to do. And these people were rock stars and they were bombarded by people and everybody was following them around and nobody (laughs) knew who the heck I was. And I just seriously... Jeff, I wanted to cry. I felt Mm. like such a loser. And to be honest with you, I mean, I didn't feel better for that whole conference. I felt like I just wanted to leave, right? But I stuck it out. And and I think what happened, which is kind of funny, is two years later, I just kept working on I was a speaker at that conference in the same position that I had seen those people. Mm. And what I realized from that experience is, listen, most of us feel like imposters most of the time. If you have that healthy ego, you're probably a little bit of a narcissist or you're some (laughs) sort of psychopath. But the important thing to do is to try to remember why you are special or good at something. Like, what is it that you're good at? All of us have something. Ask your best friends to tell you. Try to remember those things and use them as the kernel of the place where you get your confidence from. And also be humble and recognize that, yes, you are sometimes are going to be the guy on the outside or the woman on the outside looking in and that it may take you time to get there. But if you keep chipping away at it, you know, you will get there. You know, it, it really is worth it uh, to, to stick that out. I remember doing an interview on another podcast uh, on someone's platform that I didn't feel uh, worthy to be on. 
I thought, you know, it's a mistake that I've been invited to appear on the show and I'm going to be found out. And I remember being asked that first question, Patrick, a question that only I could ever answer and be qualified to answer because it was, hey, tell us how you got from point A to point B. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I froze and I had to like stop and collect myself and uh, finally got through it uh, and, and was able to, to, to get to the end without, you know, falling apart. And it got easier as it went along. Mm-hmm. But here, the funny part is two years later, tomorrow night, I'm having dinner with this person. Mm-hmm. It's funny to look back on that and, and go, gosh, that was so hard. What was I worried about? It's all in our heads. I mean, it's just, it's just this manufactured nonsense that we just need to, to fight through. And if we continue to do that, uh, we'll eventually come out on the other side. You know, it's so true. And, you know, I come from this small town in Maine, like 20,000 person town, very blue collar. It's it's a great place. But, you know, my, you know, the things that I've been able to do were not the kinds of things that I even knew, knew existed when I was growing up. <laughs> but my parents, my, you know, we, we were like, I come, my, my grandparents worked in factories and, you know, my grandfather's job was literally to go at one point was to go around the town with this big vacuum and empty the sewers. So like, <laughs> <laughs> that's what he did. Um, but he did it and he made him living and you know, that that's what he needed to do. Mm. Um, and I think about it, you know, what was so interesting is my parents, my brother is a jazz musician, you know, I'm a business person. We do very different things, but when we were kids, anything we ever wanted to try, whether it was to learn about history in Boston or make our science project, like they would just throw us into it and help us do it. And, you you know, it was never like, you can't do this thing. And I think that also is helpful is when you surround yourself with people who are people who have an optimistic mindset and don't limit themselves mm-hmm. um, and say, like, there's a mountain in front of me. Let, like, let's climb it. Not, oh, that's a tall mountain. Like, I don't want to do that. It's also about getting people around you who will support you because it's hard to do it, you know, be the only voice in your head, right? It's better to surround yourself with people who can also believe in you. Uh, Patrick, I work with a lot of business owners and solopreneurs looking to launch podcasts and, and also podcast first content creators looking to to monetize or or leverage their podcast in, in some way uh, mm. for courses and, and the like. And I often talk to them about the benefits of playing the long game in, in this space. What does the long game look like for, for a 10% entrepreneur? So the long game is my response to any notion that this is a get rich quick scheme, the, you know, the, I remember these, you know, I read the book about a a book that's a great, I mean, it's been for some people, it's been a really good book, but for me, I I couldn't figure it out how you could work a couple hours a week and somehow be rich. Um, (laughs) there's some of those out there. Right. And it was a cool idea and I tried to do it. I failed personally. And I just, you know, I, again, like I've always been a believer that you need to create strategies that you can pursue over years and years and years and you build something over time. And that whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's, you know, speculative stocks, trying to, you know, jump on the bandwagon on the the, the most, you know, recent easy way to make money. <laughs> you know, maybe you're an expert in Bitcoin. You know how to do that. I don't. And so I don't play that game. Mm-hmm. Um, I am all about, you know, building, you know, you want to plant your garden, tend to it and have, you know, everything grow for a while. So that for a 10% entrepreneur, the long game is starting with one project, moving on to a second and a third and a fourth. And over time, building a portfolio. And there's a guy that I met who I think really embodies this. His name is Steve Siegel. He's the chairman of a company called CBRE um, for, for, uh, in, in New York City. It's a huge company, right? Mm-hmm. But this guy started out with, you know, from nothing. He started out just like lots of people, you know, ma- he made his own way in the world. And he, from early in his career, now he's nearly 70, I think, he started doing things on the side and working in investing and doing real estate things on the side. And then he became an investor and he invested in a restaurant chain and in a, in a minor league baseball team. Today, he has over 100 
10%. Mm. He loves them. He's known for them. Mm. I mean, the guy has made a tremendous amount of money on his side projects, but he keeps his day job because he loves it. Mm. And I think that's really admirable that he's been able to build this. And then also he supports other entrepreneurs. The guy, even if he quote unquote retires, he'll always have exciting projects he can get involved with on the side. And I think that's really cool. Mm. Yeah. And you, I think you said earlier, you've got 20 or so yourself, don't you? I do. I do. <laughs> and you know what people say? Well, you know, and it's a fair question. Like uh, you're a 200% entrepreneur. And I say, well, that's, 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 that's much more than, <laughs> than the reality because <laughs> You know, some of these things take very little time. Some take some time up front, but the, you, the, you choose the projects that fit into your life and then you build them over time. And, and you know, I, since I started doing this, I've already made five times my money in cash and I'm, you know, on paper, I'm worth like, you know, I've, I made 30 times the money I put in. Mm, that's fantastic. Well, I have a couple of questions not related to the book I want to uh, squeeze in here. What have I missed? Is there anything from the book I haven't uh, dug into that you want to make sure we know? Yeah, I mean, I think the one big notion, and there's a couple, just two things I'd share. Number one is, this is really about ownership. So there's, you know, there are a lot of people doing freelancing and, you know, for example, driving an Uber, and, and that's great. And there's, I, I certainly think that's a great way to make it a little extra money. But the idea of a 10% entrepreneur is being an owner in things that even if you're sleeping, mm. can be growing to make you money. Um, that's, that's number one. Um, and number two is, this is really something that everybody can do. It, when I wrote the book, what I didn't want people to say was, oh, you know, that's great, Patrick. You live in New York City. You went to Harvard. You know, it's very easy for you to say that's I'm I, I'm not, you know, on paper, it's not the most relatable case. And I admit that. So I decided to interview people all over the world from every different background. You can imagine they're doing 10 percent of one kind or another. And I have met people in Uganda and in Kenya and in China and in Brazil and in Mexico and all over the U.S. and Europe who are doing doing things, all kinds of different things. So if you hear this and you're interested, I can tell you there's somebody in the book that you will relate to. And there is a story that you will say, I can do that too. And that's really critical. Everybody can do this. And I liked how not every story in the book was a success story. There were some examples where it didn't turn into what the founder originally thought it might be, but then that was used as an example of, well, then how do you handle that afterwards? How do you handle those relationships, the investors? How do you how do you go to them and handle those conversations, which I thought was very, very helpful? Yeah, I love that. And I really admire the people who were profiled there because having somebody <laughs> put a book out, even the major publisher that talks about the time you failed, <laughs> right. is it takes a lot of confidence. And both of those people have gone on to great success and other things. And, you know, they were very introspective and, and willing to be, you know, to, to, to show the world that, you know, this is how I handled failure. And I think that's amazing. Well, as a lover of books, I always like to ask uh, what you have read in the not too distant past that sets you ablaze, if you will. What would you say are the two or three titles, Patrick, that uh, that you immediately go back to as, as having had a big impact on you? Yes. I just read a book called Venture Deals by Brad Feld, and it's a really fantastic handbook for looking at venture capital. Say you're maybe making an investment or you're signing a contract, you're forming a company like every it goes through all of the terms of a potential uh, investment in an entrepreneurial company. And it's just so clear and it's so well done. He just, it's it's a wonderful book. And it was referred to me by a friend who's a VC. So I read that this summer and I thought, I mean, I'll, I will be looking at that book the rest of my career. Mm -hmm. I love that book. I also, I really love the book, The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Oh, yeah. Fantastic because it really explains how 
because of the lean approach to startups, uh, anybody can really start something. And I think that's critical to 10% entrepreneurship. So those are my two favorites. And then I'm into the practical here. So maybe I'm, <laughs> you know, if you wanted like a you know, something less practical, I guess I'm in a practical mood today. There is a business book called The Entrepreneur's Guide to Business Law by Constance Bagley, who is a professor at Yale Law School. She was my professor at Harvard. I took her class and that book is so good. It's actually kind of a fun read too. I mean, how do you make entrepreneur law fun? I don't know. She did it, but that's a winner. I love that book. Business law is one of my favorite classes. Love that class. It's so interesting. And she <laughs> is so smart and she's such a good person. And I just love her class. Well, I know you, you speak in front of audiences across the globe often. I'd love to know from you, Patrick, what are some tips you would pass along to those who, who may find themselves in your shoes for, for generating and delivering an impactful and memorable talk? Ooh, I had to learn how to do this. So I've <laughs> gone through it. I've really gone through a metamorphosis on this one. Mm. As a kid, I did speech competitions and I was I was I always was very comfortable speaking. Mm. But when I started developing like keynote speeches to talk about my book, my decks looked like I was giving like a corporate presentation. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? Like dense words, all this sort of yeah. stuff. And I had to learn how to make the slides very simple and then really focus on story. So what people tend to come back to me whenever I give a talk is, I and you've heard this today, I like to tell stories and I like to talk about myself. And what I had to learn through this whole journey is that I was very, and this goes back to imposter syndrome, what you said earlier. Mm. In the beginning, I was very afraid of talking about myself when I talked about <laughs> the book and other stuff. I was like, let me make this about the book and the people in it. And I profile these people and that's great. And what I learned was people want to hear from you about what you've done. They want to hear your failures and your successes, and they want to hear it in an authentic way. And the minute that I got comfortable putting myself into it and, and telling stuff that maybe wasn't even you know very comfortable to say was when I saw people start to respond in a whole different way. So my takeaway from that is two things. Keep your presentation simple, make it visually impactful, but simple, and then make it personal. And, and just tell people what really happened because the minute, you know, I mean, I don't, you don't want to put all your dirty laundry out there either. I think that can be a little bit over the top, but, you know, tell people about the time that, you know, you, you went to the conference and lost your luggage and felt like a loser. <laughs> We've all been there. And I think it's important to show that. Well, I know the book has been out now for what, about 18 months or so, I guess. I'd be curious to know what's next for you. What are you and your team working on now that, that's got you excited or that you're able to, to share? Sure. So what's, you know, this has been an interesting journey. So this was my first time when I published the book, I had, I really didn't even have a plat, you know, what they call platform in this world, which means, you know, followers and all that sort of stuff. I just didn't, you know, I didn't have that. Um, this kind of fell out of the sky for me. <laughs> The only reason I got a book deal is because a journalist credited me with um, with inventing the term FOMO, fear of missing out. Mm. So anyway, I had to learn how to do all this sort of stuff, and it's been a lot of fun. And I ended up hiring a firm and started working with a team that does – I do everything bilingual. I speak Spanish, and I do a lot of stuff in Latin America. So in Caracas, actually um, – is where a lot of my, you know, my team is there and, and it's, it's awesome. They're amazing. What we're focusing on now is number one, we're building a community. So the 10% entrepreneurship club to get people together 
in our community and get people helping each other out and starting things together and just get that conversation going. That's one. Number two is I'm developing a new keynote all about FOMO and FOBO or fear of a better option, which may or may not, we'll see where that goes, but I'm really starting to talk about that in a big way. And number three is I'm, I'm helping corporations to use the 10% mentality and the 10% mindset to help their employees become entrepreneurs, entrepreneurial minders, so that they can then come back to their day jobs and make their companies more entrepreneurial. So working with corporations to go in and actually do those kinds of programs. And I, I will tell you that if people are interested in learning more, you can go to my site, which is patrickmcginnis.com. If you do patrickmcginnis.com slash build your 10, you can download a free workbook that kind of goes along with the book to actually do all the exercises and write in and everything like that. And then if you go to my Facebook page, The 10 Entrepreneur, you can you know join my community and meet other 10% entrepreneurs. And I'm on Twitter at PJ McGinnis. So it's all there. Uh, if you go to my website, uh, you, you won't have problems finding me. But I'm just at the end of the day, what I want to do is get as many people doing this as possible. Like it's my life mission and I'm not going to give up until everybody's a 10% <laughs> entrepreneur. <laughs> well, I think that's a great mission to have. One that I certainly believe in having experienced some of its benefits myself. So thank you for, for carrying that torch. Thank you. It's really nice having a chat today and I appreciate it. I have a friend who's just started a brand new podcast where he talks to people doing the very kinds of things that Patrick, our guest today, is talking about. His name is Sean Sechrist, and his new podcast is called The Unbeaten Path. You can find out more about his show at ubpath.com. If you believe that taking action toward the life you want and not the life others expect you to live is key to experiencing personal success and true fulfillment, then his podcast is for you. Every Tuesday and Thursday, he has a conversation with someone who has created life on their own terms. This includes entrepreneurs, uh, dream chasers, people pursuing a life of personal success and fulfillment over status and money. Again, you can find Sean and the Unbeaten Path podcast at ubpath.com. That's the letter U, the letter B, path.com. Easiest way to remember not only that link, but all the links and resources that Patrick and I talked about today is by going to the show notes page created especially for this episode. You'll find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 187 for episode 187. I'd like to say thanks again to our sponsor for this episode, Cloud Accounting Software FreshBooks. For all your cloud accounting needs, visit freshbooks.com slash read to lead and be sure to enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us section and take advantage of that free 30-day trial they're offering right now. That's going to do it for another week. I look forward to seeing you next time for the next episode of the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Read to Lead podcast. As a subscriber, we challenge you to be more than just a passive listener. Become a vital member of the community. Visit us on the web at readtoleadpodcast.com. Until next time, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read to Lead.